Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Lauren Williams, the co-founder and CEO of Capital B. That's a new nonprofit media company dedicated to news for Black audiences. Capital B launched last week with both a national news site and a local newsroom dedicated to Atlanta. We plan to expand to more cities over time. Now, I'll just be honest with you. This episode's a little looser than usual since Lauren used to be the editor-in-chief of Vox.com, the Verge's sister site at Vox Media. We were co-workers for a long time. We're still friends. So while I did my best to ask all of the decoder questions, we made each other laugh a little bit more than usually happens on this show. But I still wanted to know why Lauren decided to go and do a startup, what the last year of building that startup ahead of the launch has been like, and how she thinks about standing out in a media business where the pressures of social media and search traffic kind of make everything look the same. And of course, I wanted to know how she plans to grow. Now that she's the CEO, how is she making decision about Capital B's path forward? One note, Lauren was just on the Recode Media podcast with Peter Kafka, where she talked in more detail about the editorial vision for Capital B. That conversation's great, you should listen to it, but it's not what we talked about. I wanted to spend more time on decoder stuff, being a founder, raising money, making decisions, all that sort of thing. Lauren is a really sharp leader. I've personally learned a lot from her. I think you're really going to like this one. Okay, Lauren Williams, co-founder and CEO of Capital B. Here we go. Lauren Williams, you are the co-founder and CEO of Capital B, which is a new startup that launched technically in January, but really at the beginning of February. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. I have to, I'm just going to admit to the audience, Lauren and I know each other very well. You used to be the editor-in-chief of Vox.com. Yes. Just down the hall when the hall was like an actual physical concept. So we have spent a lot of time talking to each other about running media organizations. That's the disclosure. I'm going to try to ask really hard questions, though. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to do my best. Um, Let's start with the hardest question of all. What is Capital B? Uh, Capital B is a nonprofit, local, and national news organization for Black people. I want to ask why, specifically why now, but let's just step back. You were the editor-in-chief of Vox.com. That's a big job in this media ecosystem. You left in November 2020. 
to start working in Capital B. What made you take that leap? I actually announced I was leaving in November 2020. I actually left officially in February of 2021. But the thing that made me take the leap was my co-founder, Okoto Foriata, and I, I think, it, you know, we've known each other for 11 years. We met when we started working together at The Root um, as editors a very long time ago. In June of 2020, as newsroom leaders, she was managing editor at The Trace at the time, we were having a lot of feelings about, you know, the state of the industry, the state of coverage of Black issues in the industry, the state of Black journalists in the industry. It was also a moment where things felt kind of apocalyptic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, And, you know, it, it was a thing that we could have talked about forever and ever at maybe a different moment in time. But I think because of where we were in COVID, because of all of the uncertainty about the future, instead of making us kind of hunker down and not do anything, I think it had the opposite effect. And it made us say, if the world's going to end, let's do this thing. Let's actually make this happen. Let's put our experience and our skills towards something that we think could make a real difference for our industry, could make a difference for, not to sound too lofty, democracy. So we just talked to Ruben Harris, who's the CEO of Career Karma, about the great resignation. I want to remind people that that moment in 2020 was the beginning of a pretty intense convulsion in the entire job market. Like That's when people started quitting. In particular, in media, that's when I would say the Substack discourse really picked up. Like Lots of people started leaving institutional newsrooms to build new kinds of things. Do you put yourself in that wave? Does that feel like the same moment in time, or do you feel like you're doing something substantively different? I really don't feel like it. And I and I also don't really feel like the Substack wave. I mean, I guess not all of the Substack wave, right? Because I, I feel like the great resignation in its purest sense is people just leaving, right? Like leaving the workforce. And, you know, a lot of the Substack people, that's just like moving to a new job. They got paid, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, you know, it's a, it's an alternative type of work, of course, but, you know, it wasn't without security. And I kind of feel the same way about what we were doing. I didn't make the call to leave Vox until we secured enough funding to know that we were going to be able to get paid, that this was something that had resonance in the philanthropy world where I knew we were going to get real funding. It was a gamble for sure, but it wasn't like a Jerry Maguire, like <laughs> who's, who's coming with me kind of thing. I am much too cautious for that. And I have a mortgage and <laughs> a kid in daycare. And I, that's I, I don't feel like I great resignated resigned. Yeah, I just think it's interesting that, that that it's hard to remember what that felt like almost two years ago now, right? Like, even f- I think for everyone, but that moment, particularly in media, around the time of the George Floyd protests in the middle of the pandemic, there was an election coming up. 
it did feel like the media had, was failing. It had failed to tell some important story. And a lot of people were just opting out of the traditional media ecosystem. Do you think that Capital B sits as a part of that traditional ecosystem? Does it sit next to it? Or are you aiming to build something else entirely? I think it sits next to it, but it is, in that sense, a part of that movement of something here is not working. Something here in traditional media is too kind of constrained or too set in its ways, either from a business perspective or from an editorial perspective, to respond to the needs of the moment. And... That is, I think, really, really seen in local news, which is failing across the country and desperately needs refreshing. That is a business issue for local news. It's a cultural issue as well. I mean, there's, a, there's an enormous trust problem. And those business issues and those trust issues really do go hand in hand. They're aligned. And the effects of those issues are one and the same. Misinformation and disinformation is rising. Lack of local news contributes to polarization. And we need new ideas to respond to those issues. So you left in February of 21. It's now February of 22. You've been building for a year. What has that process been like? It's been... A lot of really intense fundraising, most of it. We needed to raise a lot of money to do what we wanted to do. Our idea is ambitious to have a national newsroom and also launch a local newsroom and have a centralized business function that's going to be able to support not just our first local newsroom, which is in Atlanta, but our subsequent local newsrooms. That's not cheap. And to be able to do the kind of journalism that we want to do for our audience that we feel like our audience deserves, that's also not cheap. And so we had to raise a lot of money. And it's hard to raise a lot of money. And it took a while before we could start hiring and making the plans we needed to make to actually launch. I feel like a very underappreciated part of a founder's life is just the amount of time spent on raising money. Right. What did that look like? What were those meetings like? Were you going after people you thought you could win? Were you going after everybody? How did you make that strategy? Well, one of the reasons, uh, you know, you asked earlier why we decided to do this now. And I gave I gave a true answer. But one of the things that I left off was in 2020, there was an enormous kind of new will in the country to address racial equity issues in our country. And every industry, every corner of business had their own reckoning and and philanthropy was no different. And we also know that those things are fleeting. And it really did seem like we needed to jump on that moment um, before before it went away so that we could raise money for capital B. And so while we were raising money last year, it was, you know, all these foundations had their racial equity funds that they had created and um, were really, really, really interested in two Black women founders who were starting a, a news organization like ours. And so that created a lot of opportunities for us and 
doors that were open to us that would not have been opened otherwise. It was still really hard. Raising money, you know, foundations are really interesting. You know, on their on their homepage, they'll have this big splashy, like we care about racial equity <laughs> kind of thing. And then once you get down to like finding the contact to get a meeting, they'll say like, don't call us, we'll call, call you. No unsolicited, like no unsolicited grants. Like uh, we will, um, we don't take meetings. We identify for ourselves the people we want to give grants to. So how does this work if you don't know anyone? And that's something that we ran into a lot, particularly for me. I mean, I was at Vox for almost seven years. I don't, I'm not from the philanthropy world. I did not have any contacts in this space at all. So there's lots of hitting brick walls because you do have to know someone to get into these rooms. There's not just like one party where all the billionaires are at. And you're no, just no like there's, at. there's not one party where the billion billionaires are. And at the, you know, at the big foundations, you have to get an introduction somehow. And if you're not in, you're not in. Do you think that process was made easier or harder with the amount of just remote work that everyone has been doing? I feel like I could go either way. Oh, I think it was actually easier. I mean, because I think that three years ago, you had to fly places for these meetings. And now they're all on Zoom. And I think that that will continue. And I think everyone involved is happier about that. That's fascinating to me. Just that all these kind of organizations are making these commitments. There might not be a lot of places to spend the money. Seems like something that you identified. Or you could create new places for them to spend the money. But then because of remote it was actually easier to make those connections than it might have been in a, a normal circumstance. Seems like a very unique set of things lining up. Did you tailor your approach to that situation? Did you find yourself changing midstream as you raised money? Not really. I think that the really interesting thing that we found really overall is, I don't know, you know me. I'm interested to know if you would imagine that I'd be good at fundraising <laughs> or not good at fundraising. <laughs> 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 I told but you it was going to be a weird one. I did not think I did not think that I was going to be particularly good at fundraising. The place that I generally have held in work is that I'm I'm competent and I'm 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 good at the job I do, but I am a behind the scenes kind of person, you know. And when you're co-founding an organization, that doesn't really work anymore. And in these meetings, I had to just be the, the voice of capital B. I found that when it's your mission and your idea, and it's just really, truly authentic, you don't even have to use your deck or you don't have to have like a bunch of flash. You just have to talk and it really resonates with people. And that ended up being something that worked the best for us, just being very very natural. We are, Okoto and I are like actual friends, actual people who know each other. We have actual chemistry and that just worked and we're just real. And to the extent that we can keep that going and can keep that with the new people that we hire, that we're just honest about what we're doing and why we're doing it, I think that that will continue to work. 
I will definitely say that, uh, at least in my experience at Vox Media, I was definitely the all singing, all dancing salesperson <laughs> when we were in meetings together. Um, but it's, uh, that's fascinating to me, right? Like the actual process of taking the meeting and asking for something is not normal for editorial people. No. Right? We're not in the business of making transactions in that way. Not at all. It sounds like you are spending just like an awful lot of your time fundraising. How, what's the split? Give me the percentage. Well, I mean, since we launched last week, I haven't, it's been like the first week I haven't really done that much. <laughs> um, but I mean, prior, it's probably like 75%. Has it gotten easier over time? Definitely. I used to be really nervous about it and I, I like it actually. What is that meeting like? You have a pitch deck. Yes, which we never use. You never use it. We never, ever use it in a meeting. You just like open the first slide and then you're just like off to the races. We never even open it. Really? Yeah. I, I think we've used our pitch deck maybe twice in a, in a meeting. And, and that's like how you know it's like not going to go well. <laughs> no, it, it, it actually, I think it, it went well in those meetings. I just, we don't ask people if they want to see it and we don't use it. And we usually send it afterward. I generally just launch into our origin story and I explain our model and why we're doing what we're doing. And I, I generally tell an incredibly personal story about my state of mind when we came up with Capital B, a story so personal that I'm not going to even say it here. Um, and, you know, that's where the conversation starts. And people really respond really well to that level of detail that I give and the honesty of my story. And if the person is a mom, um, they respond really well to <laughs> me talking about how hard it was for me in June of 2020. And I try to be just really relatable. And, you know, I'm not a super formal person. I don't take these meetings in a super formal way. I think that if I went into them feeling like I had to do that, I don't think I would be quite as successful. How do you think about the the next step, right? Which is you've done all this fundraising, you've launched, you've got a week under your belt, and now the, the next step is X. What do you think that next step is? What all this fundraising was moving into last week was like, help us launch, help us launch, help us make this thing a reality. Now this thing is a reality. And the next step is to really like recalibrate and figure out the pitch for help us take this thing into the next stratosphere. To the moon. Yeah. And really refine all of the details of what that means. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, Lauren and I talk about growing an audience and if the biggest threat to her growth is meme accounts on Instagram. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. 
For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back. At Vox.com, you were the editor-in-chief. You had a very editorial role. You were also the senior vice president. So you did have some business line responsibilities. But it's different than what you're doing now. Why choose the CEO role? You're co-founding. You can pick any structure you want. Why would you pick the more business role? It was because of the SVP editor-in-chief hybrid experience at Vox, which was my role. When I left Vox, I was overseeing both the business and the editorial functions. It's really two jobs. And what I wanted to make sure of at Capital B was that that job was split. I did feel like at this point in my career, if I was being honest with myself, it's kind of where I was leaning more towards. And hiring an editorial lead just made more sense uh, to me. And you know, right now we're in startup mode. I'm still involved in editorial. Oh, no. As you can, <laughs> not in a bad way. I'm just, you Someone's know. writing the tweets. All hands on deck. <laughs> all hands on deck. Um, but, you know, ultimately the plan is that I'm not. And, yeah. you know, Simone Sebastian is our editorial director. She's an amazing editor. I trust her implicitly. And I can just be proud of the work that we're doing and do work that supports that work. That's the ultimate plan. And I feel good about that. How much money were you able to raise? Uh, we raised 9.4 million before we launched. And you've launched a national site and a local news site in Atlanta. How mm -hmm. many people do you have? Right now we have 16. We're hiring many more people, um, hoping for 27 in the next month or so. 27 more people. No, no, no. A total of 27. Okay. Uh, well, that's still huge, right? Yeah. Uh, is your job to keep trying to raise money while they go off and do the news? Or are you going to try to stay stable for a while? How's that working? Always keep trying to raise money, scope out new uh, locations for a newsroom, new opportunities and partnerships. What are the metrics you're looking at for success? Right. So you've launched the two. It's, it's only been a week. But what are the numbers you're looking at to say, OK, this is working. We can keep investing here versus we got to change somehow. We obviously care about 
audience. We don't have a very high publishing cadence, so we don't have enormous expectations for our audience. But we want to make sure that people are, obviously, we want to make sure that people are consuming our work. But we also want to make sure that we are, and particularly in our local newsrooms, that we are connecting with our audience in a meaningful way. And this is an important metric for us. All of our local newsrooms are going to have community engagement editors whose job is to actually in-person interface with Black people in our coverage area, going to community meetings, running community meetings, canvassing neighborhoods, returning to those neighborhoods to talk to the same people, asking our readers if an article help them to make an action or take an action or better understand how to navigate their community. These are the things that we are hoping to use to tailor our content to the audience, to build trust with the audience, to create a news source that people actually want and need. And so in addition to traffic, in addition to just like building an audience. We want to actually make content that's useful. And that's going to be a really important metric for us moving forward as well to to prove out what we're actually trying to do here, which is have community informed news. How do you think that role plays with your reporters in those communities? It's kind of a dream for them in terms of sourcing, right? To have this kind of front row seat to one potential stories because you know, what this brings back to the newsroom is like sources, potential sources, potential story ideas that they never would have found out otherwise. And then, you know, feedback that, you know, sometimes we rely only on comments or Twitter. Not everybody's on Twitter. Not everyone's going to give feedback on Facebook. And this is a great way to, to hear about the work. One of the challenges with every media organization is Twitter. Reporters are hopelessly addicted to Twitter. It's just a thing that we all have to deal with. Are you hoping to build a less online newsroom? Like it's, It sounds like you don't want to focus as much on the pressures of social media on a newsroom, and you want your reporters out in the world and somehow collecting feedback from people in the real world. Is that something you can measure? Is that something you can mandate? Are you building a system that gets to that goal more directly? Because that seems like one of the hardest challenges of all is stop paying attention to the media bubble on Twitter and start paying attention to real people. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's a combination of of less online and more online because we do want to meet people where they are, right? And a lot of, there's a lot of Black people who, on Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram, and in fact, Black people over-index on those things. You don't want to be stuck in the media bubble on Twitter, but you might want to be on, you know, other segments of Twitter, (laughs) that might be where a chunk of your audience is. But yeah, I think it's about finding the balance, right? In Atlanta, there are these incredibly popular meme sites that give like these local news headlines with pretty much zero context. They have millions of followers, like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has something in like the mid hundreds, hundred thousands um, of Instagram followers. And then like these meme sites with like local Atlanta headlines will have like million plus. And so 
obviously we should be on Instagram because <laughs> there's <laughs> a real market, right? But it's just about finding the balance and, and figuring out how to manage being on social media with being in person and making sure like we're not paying attention to the wrong side of social media. It's an audience focus, not a media focus. Are you interested in those kinds of like format experiments? Like, would you ever, when you're like, I need to be on Instagram, are you like, we should just do a meme site? That's the format that's working on Instagram. I mean, I think that was that, a big like, sigh, Lauren. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I think that I, I think that look, I think that there, I think that we should take lessons from it. Yeah, I think that the thing that we want to do is provide a lot more context to people than those meme sites. Yeah, but I think that we should take lessons from why they're so popular. Is, is it the way they look? Is it the way they they market themselves and improve upon the way that they're delivering the news to people? You talked a lot about trust. I feel like the, the meme sites are really voicey, right? They lead to conclusions. When you want to be of service to a community the way you're talking about, you might want to offer people a conclusion or an advocacy step afterwards that you're talking about, make an action, take an action. A lot of people say, why don't I trust the media? And it's because of advocacy. It's because of opinion. And they, all the data says that people say they want extremely straight-laced news reporting. And then all of the audience data says they do not want that. Right, they will chase a filter bubble of their own devising. How are you balancing that when you when you're inventing a new local news site? I really think it depends on what you consider advocacy. And I, you know, I know that with how pol- polarized our country is, that encouraging people to vote can be considered advocacy, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's you know that's the sort of service I'm talking about, like figuring out how to get your voting rights restored if you're an ex felon or get the child tax credit if you are a non-taxpayer or things that are just part of being a citizen that are very hard for some people to access or to understand or to even trust because they seem maybe too good to be true and there's a lot of government mistrust out there. These are just things that help people navigate the world around them, right? Or access benefits of being part of a community. And much less advocacy and more access, right? And that's how we're thinking about it. You said voting rights are a political issue. They absolutely are, right? Yeah. Just every day right now, there's another piece of the news cycle where some state Republican Party is saying getting more people to vote is an inherently political act. Mm -hmm. At some point, I'm assuming you've run into the notion that merely starting a news site for black people is an inherently political act, right? That's the flip side of the voting thing. You say, I want to get more black people and people of color to vote. And the response is, well, you just want to elect Democrats because there's a one-to-one identity between minorities and Democrats, which I don't think is the case at all. When you frame your coverage, right? One, of, I think one of the more surprising revelations of this past news cycle is actually a, a lot of black people are more conservative than the progressives are making them out to be. How does that play into your coverage? Well, most Black people are Democrats, but a lot of Black people are lowercase c conservative. Right. That is the thing that that will play into our coverage. And I think that one of our kind of core operating principles at Capital B is that in both our coverage and in our internal culture, that we 
respect the the various identities and beliefs of Black people in America and, and understand that there's not just one way to be. And I think particularly when we have a, a young staff that maybe leans, uh, you know, further left than Black America at large, that's something that we have to remember, that there's a wide range of political opinions, particularly even within the, the Democratic Party. Um, but I think that that is something else that our community listening will really help bring to bear that, you know, we're talking to a bunch of boomers in Atlanta. They're going to have <laughs> a, a different opinion about public safety and the police than the kids on Spelman's campus. And that's just a fact. And, you know, that's really helpful information for our reporting. It, like Atlanta is a big city, right? So you, you, when we talk about local news and you're like, my first market is Atlanta. Atlanta is a huge place. How do you decide what parts of Atlanta are going to take the attention? Is that just for the newsroom? I realize I'm asking, you're the CEO and I'm asking a lot of editorial questions, but it's a startup. I feel like these are, you have to have been talking about all this stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why we kind of, we, we went with a real beat focus and we were going to cover themes around the metro area and not focus as much on specific neighborhoods. And each of our reporters is really going to identify a series of themes that they're going to focus on throughout the area. We can't hit it all, but, you know, really try to focus on like where those big themes are playing out throughout the metro area and cover those big stories. That split in the audience you mentioned, we'll just stick with Atlanta for a second. Right, you've got a bunch of older folks who might be more conservative in some of their views, and you've got a bunch of younger folks on college campuses, and you've got a bunch of people online. Do you think that you can sell them an idea that this is a new site for all of us, inclusive of all black people, as opposed to what is kind of very broadly happening in the rest of the political media, which is you have to pick a political party and then you like pick a new site? Because that's the other way that you could segment an audience, right? You can say, I'm, I'm making a, a website for Democrats or liberals or whatever. And that is the prevailing trend. You're cutting against that in a different way. How are you thinking about managing that tension? I really don't think it's as much as of a tension. Okay. There is a diversity of political opinion, but there's also a shared cultural interest in and desire for news about Black people and the issues facing Black people that I think overrides those differences. And I think if we're reflecting those differences fairly and just not kind of pretending that Black people in Atlanta or Black people in the country are monolithically believe in defunding the police or what have you, then I think that that's not really that big of a problem. I think there's a tie that binds that's pretty tight. So you started with Atlanta. You also started with a national site, not another city. Yeah. Why a national presence as opposed to another city? We really wanted to hit two different levels of need that we saw in the market. So we talked a lot about local news and what's missing. And we talked about the service aspect of what we're trying to do locally. But we also saw something that has often frustrated me and Akoto, which is there's a lot of national news about 
Black people about the issues that Black people face, um, ambitious investigations, ambitious features that are about Black people, but for white audiences. And there's not as much news like that for Black national audiences. And we really wanted to provide that level of ambition for a national Black audience, the type of news that drives conversation and moves the needle. And doing news like that at a national website also provides a real sort of anchor and a hub for a growing network of local newsrooms. And so it really just made sense to us to build that out as we're growing at the local newsrooms. I feel like I understand the coverage strategy for local newsrooms, right? You're going to cover a bunch of local politicians and local decisions and help people advocate for their communities. The national news desk is like, you can pick anything. It's a huge open waterfront. How did you narrow down what you're going to cover on the national desk? How big is the national desk? It's going to be four to five reporters to start. And the beats actually mirror the local ones. Uh, Criminal justice, politics, education, climate, oh, and health, health. And that's a that's a big one. recently. Yes, <laughs> it's a big one. Uh, and we chose those beats to start because those are, you know, the big ones that we feel are the, the kind of the most important to black life in America. And we, we do want to expand. I really want to have a rural issues reporter um, at some point. We want to do housing and economics, build it out so that we're covering, you know, kind of every angle that that really matters that we can go deep on. But it really wasn't that hard to figure out the big beats that we wanted to cover. When you think about that kind of expansion, I know you, again, we've worked together. When I would pitch an expansion for editorial, I'd have to go somewhere and say, we've done some experiments. We've discovered there's an audience here. I'd have to talk to somebody on a sales team. They would have to tell me that they could sell it in some way, one way or the other, to an advertiser. And then we could like pay to hire the new people, and then hopefully our bet paid off. You're the CEO. How are you making those decisions? Well, in the nonprofit, it's a little different. The calculation is, is this objectively important for us to cover? And is there a way to pay for it, either through a grant or through advertising, sponsorship? We feel like everything that we've chosen thus far is objectively important to cover. And I think when it's grant funded, you find someone who shares your your values on this and also believes that it's objectively important to cover and you make it happen. You've got three levels of donations. It starts at $96 for a year and it goes up to $240 for How does that work? So it's our membership program. You can either pay monthly or for a full year. It's not a subscription. We don't have a paywall. It is a, a reader donation program that, you know, readers can contribute to if they believe in us, believe in our content, and want to help us be free for everyone. Where do you think, in the end, the primary source of revenue is going to be? Is it going to be from a mass of people donating? Is it going to be from foundations and grants? I think our primary source of revenue will continue to be major gifts uh, and foundation grants. But 
we're growing our membership base and growing our earned revenue uh, from sponsorships. And, you know, the goal is to build up those two so that we aren't entirely dependent on foundations and major gifts. How do you decide when to launch the next city? Is there a dollar amount that you have in mind? Is it we've developed enough audience, we have a playbook, we've refined it. What's the decision process there? We want to raise a significant amount of money to fund the the next newsroom because local money is important in, in funding the, the local newsrooms. And we also have to hire, and hiring is slow and, and hard. So <laughs> that is, that's also a big part of it. And we, and we do a lot of research. We interview a ton of people. We do uh, preliminary community listening. There's a lot of pre-work that goes into it in addition to the fundraising. So that kind of all has to be done before we, before we launch our next one. Do you have a list of targets in mind? Like, I would say, like, you're in Atlanta. It seems fairly easy to, just, like, go to Houston. Like, it's right over there. You know, like, are, are you, do you have a list of cities like that? Or are you picking something that would be even more? You're in D.C. Would you pick D.C.? Like, how are you making that list? So we do have a list. One of the primary qualifications for our cities is that there's a large Black population. And so you can guess that most of our cities on our list are in the South and the Midwest, but then also DC is on it and Baltimore and New York. But yeah, I mean, you can get, I mean, you can just look in on a population map and just guess, <laughs> guess what the cities are. Um, uh, New Orleans, Houston, Cleveland, Detroit. I mean, you, 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 you know where the black people are. The decision is, is just figuring out which one is right at the right time. How do you make that decision? Funding, talent. I think stories matter. I think, you know, this is one of the reasons why we chose Atlanta. It just, it just seemed like the perfect prototype for a capital B newsroom because of everything that's going on there. You know, we want to be able to make a difference there and and when there's news that you're you know you're really able to do that when you think about your overall model right a bunch of cities and the national desk how do you think about i'm just like in the weeds now how do you think about growing the national desk versus picking a new city because those seem like your different audiences presumably the national audience is a larger total but the cities are, it seems like that's where your emphasis is. So how do you make the decision between the two? It's not an either or. And I think that sometimes they feed each other. It depends on funding, too. I mean, we might get a grant for like criminal justice coverage, and that will fund national and local criminal justice coverage, right? So that will help us grow our national team and our local teams. But we also kind of fundraise separately for these. So they're not necessarily all part of the same pot of money. And so they're not really the same decision, necessarily. We need to take one more break, but we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We're back with Lauren Williams. You officially launched on January 31st. So what have you learned in your first week in front of the public? Oh, um, we need more people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Look, you might be the CEO, but that is the ultimate editor-in-chief answer. I got to be honest with you. That is, like, exactly what I would have said. Like, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I just need more bodies. Like, just spend more money on me. <laughs> Uh, we need more people, Neelai. Um, <laughs> it was a blur of a week, and we worked so hard to get here, and it was like a, a you know a reset where it's just like, oh, now we're now we're fine. <laughs> now we are just gonna. Now there's like a new version of just working hard. I you know I'm excited. I want to take some time just at the end here to zoom way out and talk about the overall media. You obviously ran a huge newsroom. It was very much built on the back of, let's just say, social media distribution, right? You, Vox is a big YouTube channel. I remember at the very beginning, there was a lot of talk about using Facebook well. All those platforms come and go. The dynamics of those platforms shape the media in all kinds of ways. SEO, like Google search, for people listening, Google search has more of an impact on the media that you read than maybe anything. It's like completely underreported on. You've got a week under your belt. You're like, we need more people. We've got so much to do. Are those platforms, do you think they're shaping you? Do you think that the media is finally divorcing themselves from it? Because that, to me, it seems like we're in a moment where there's just a lot of reconsideration about the relationship of the media writ large to the distribution platforms that have their own their own agendas, for lack of a better word. No, I don't think so. I wish, but I, I don't think it's fully divorced from it. I mean, because when you think about our first week, people aren't putting capitalbnews.org into their, <laughs> you know, they're not typing it in. Like, where are they finding us? Where are they seeing anything about us? It's on social media. And without it, imagining us totally divorced from that, like, where? how do we even launch? Like, it's kind of mm -hmm. impossible to think about how a digital new site would launch without that. I think that the dependence on it, that full measure of dependence on it, that full reliance on it, and that full reliance, I think, on just traffic, period, is probably the, like, the real thing that we're breaking from is really important. But it's still, unfortunately, so important in reaching people. And I don't know how that goes away. I wonder if it, okay, you just got to market it as opposed to marketing individual stories and hoping them will go viral. Like one of the tensions I see here is you're trying to build a site for a very specific audience. And when you measure just traffic, those platforms just want you to get everybody somehow. And everybody, you know, those platforms are not great at being diverse themselves and how they relate to people. Like you can just look at the, 
top stories on Facebook and be like, you know, this isn't everybody, right? It, it's weird, actually, what consistently goes viral on Facebook. Right. So when you're trying to find an audience, the platforms will give you lots of tools if you're an advertiser to segment the audience. But if you're just going for broad reach, everything kind of ends up looking the same. Like this would be my criticism of the media is that in particular, Facebook and Google search have made virtually every website the same. Like you can replace the banners and logos and you're like, oh, this is all pretty undifferentiated because the, the algorithmic forces of these two platforms in particular make everything look the same. How do you fight against that? Now that's how we're thinking about our offline efforts and our partnerships with black media and our other ways of, of finding audience. Because what you'll sometimes find with particularly, you know, some national digital black sites is that for this very reason, some large percentage of their audience is white because of the way that their articles are being discovered. And we really, really want to be intentional about our audience. And also by building really direct relationships with the platforms, honestly, and being partners and running experiments and doing things like that, which some <laughs> people might, you know, think is getting in bed with the enemy or whatever, but it's also a way of getting what you want out of your audience. And at the same time, very few news organizations get that opportunity. You have to be flashy or the new kid on the block or, you know, the cool kid to be able to get that opportunity. As I was preparing for this interview, I was just thinking about when I was growing up in the sort of late 80s to early 2000s, that window of time before the internet and the internet distribution just upended. Big the window, landscape. Eli. Well, <laughs> there's a reason I'm picking that window. There was a more powerful black media ecosystem at that time. Everything wasn't quite as flattened. Right. And you could just see that there was more culture being produced by black people for black people. And everyone else was invited to participate in it. But it wasn't the point to make everything for everyone. I feel like we now live in a media ecosystem where you have to make everything for everyone. Like everyone is chasing clicks and clout and views. And you're kind of like not trying to do that. Right. Why do you think that that change? Is it just Internet distribution flattened everything out? Do you think it is the tenor of our politics? Because to cut against it, you kind of have to understand why it happened in the first place. I think there's a lot of different things happening at once with that. I mean, I think there's an, a news side of it, and then there's the entertainment side of it. You know, on TV and in movies in the 90s, there were so many Black TV shows. and, and Yeah. And I like how you flatten my date range to just the 90s. So <laughs> <sussed it> <laughs> I mean, that's basically what you were saying. <laughs> I got you. All right, fine. I was trying to seem worldly. All right, keep going. <laughs> the late 80s, like 1989 to 2001. Okay, Mila, yeah. the 90s. My three decades of experience. <laughs> <laughs> right, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, uh, I think everything got politically very sanitized on the entertainment front in a way that I think really took a lot of the bite out of a lot of that Black entertainment on TV and movies that then made it seem very just kind of <sighs> flattened. And then there was also a very thriving Black news and magazine ecosystem that 
also kind of faded after that time period. That had to do with the industry's woes and digitalization and all of that in a totally separate way. But it just combined to just lessen the for us, bias aspect of Black media all around. I think that's changing now because I think the Trump years and what happened in in 2020 after George Floyd, I think that it just sort of was a wake-up call and a series of wake-up calls that Black people just always get, (laughs) that (laughs) the progress isn't quite the progress that it seemed. And the things that were created because we needed them 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 200 years ago in the case of um, Black newspapers, we actually still need them. And we need to revive them. Do you think that the community writ large feels that? Like, that to me is like one of the more challenging aspects of all media right now is you can point to historical media formats and media products and say, we used to do this. Like, this is a thing that used to exist for a long time, and it got wiped out by a whole range of forces. And particularly with younger audiences, that has no resonance for them. They're just like, well, but I live in this TikTok world. Like, I, I'm very sorry that investigative magazine journalism used to happen at a larger scale, but I'm, I'm doing T accounts on TikTok. How do you, how do you bridge that, that gap? I think you can bridge it by just not trying to do it the exact same way, right? I mean, we're not trying to do Black newspapers the exact same way that they always were. I think not being snobby about the way people receive information is a really important way forward. But I also think being really realistic about the way people receive information. You know, being really realistic about you know, are these kids on TikTok, are they ever going to pay for a newspaper subscription? Mm -hmm. Are they? I don't think they are. And so what's going to be the future of that model? We should really think about that. We should really think about the way that we're adapting to how folks are changing and how they're, they're consuming their media and how they're getting their news and not waiting till it's too late. Yeah. Well, Lauren, this has been a great conversation. I could honestly talk to you for a full other hour. I think there's a a lot more, but it's only been a week. So I think you should probably come back after you've had a little more time actually running this thing. We should catch up on it. I'd be happy to. All right, Lauren, thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks again to Lauren Williams for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, give us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.